Welcome to the Family Biz Show. According to Family Enterprise USA, family businesses in the U.S. account for over 64% of GDP and employ 62% of the workforce. In other words, they are the backbone of our economy. But success doesn't come easy. Only 13% are operating in the third generation. The Family Biz Show is here to help. Listen in weekly to hear stories from other family businesses and industry thought leaders so that you and your family not only survive, but thrive. Welcome everybody to the Family Biz Show. My name is Michael Columbus with Family Wealth and Legacy here in Rochester, New York, where we actually have our one out of seven, a lot of days of sunshine today. Um, so glad everybody's with us. We are going to be talking about how conflict can be a catalyst for good in the family business. And we are joined today by Kathy Haloub and Greg McCann. Love having you both here. Welcome, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for inviting me. So as we often do, um, we uh, like people to kind of tell us their journey, how they ended up doing what they're doing today. And uh, Kathy, if you don't mind, would you uh, kick us off? Sure. And Michael, if you don't mind, I will tell you how to pronounce my last name. Oh, <laughs> I knew that was going to happen. Sorry. Uh, no, you're... You're at the end of a long list. It's Kathy Holub. Holub. Got it. Holub. And nobody can pronounce it right, so that's all right. Um, I specialize in negotiation skills and conflict resolution. And like most of your guests, Michael, I got to this career by a winding route, not direct at all. Um, straight out of college, I was a newspaper reporter. And I had a good long career as a journalist. And when I look back from where I am now, what about that part of my life sort of um, prefigured what I do now? First of all, I was negotiating all the time as I realize now, because I had to persuade people to trust me and give me information, which they didn't always wanna do. Um, and I had, to, I had to learn how to how to really um, help people get to the, the, um, the heart of the matter. And so I loved that career. I had lots of adventures. I worked in Mississippi and in California, both places where I did not grow up. I grew up on the East Coast. And then I had a huge career crisis and realized I was in the wrong field. Okay. Um, so then I had to decide, well, what am I gonna do about this? By luck, I got a fellowship that's only for journalists um, where you get to study at Stanford for a year and just be a dilettante. You get to take any courses you want with no exams. And this was heaven for me. I didn't realize until I got to Stanford for this year how much I missed being at school. And by sheer luck, I fell into a negotiation course at Stanford Law School and it changed my life. Interesting. And yeah, it absolutely changed my life. And 
The reason it changed my life, I think, is because, first of all, I didn't know that dispute resolution and negotiation were things that could be studied and learned. And so that was a big revelation. Also, just as a student in the class, I learned a lot about myself and why I was afraid of conflict and why most other people are afraid of conflict. And it was just, it was just a, huge, a huge thing in my life. So after that, I decided to go to law school um, at the ripe age of 38. I went to Yale Law School. And after that, I always knew I wanted to get into dispute resolution, but I sort of did for a couple of years what most people do. I, I clerked for a federal judge um, and I clerked for Sonia Sotomayor, which was one of the best experiences of my life. And then I practiced for a couple of years in New York City, practiced law, big corporate law, and that was not my thing at all. So I basically stopped practicing as soon as I could, if the truth be told. But I'm very glad that I did it because it was great training. And then I went into teaching and I was just very lucky that during my fellowship year, I had met the right people who were able to steer me to the right places. So I started teaching at Columbia Law School and I learned by doing, I, I was teaching negotiation from the beginning. So I've been teaching negotiation at Columbia for about 20 years now. Soon after I started doing that, my original mentor from Stanford ended up at Harvard Law School. He invited me to start teaching there. So those are still my two academic homes. And I teach negotiation at both of them. And along the way, I developed also a practice where I've done a whole bunch of things. I've done corporate training and negotiation skills, and I've done other kinds of dispute resolution. But more recently, I've moved into an area that I think is, going, is the most satisfying of all. I know that Greg, who's gonna tell his story in a minute, I think Greg, you call it psychic income or something like that? Yep, yep. Is that it? Yeah. Absolutely. yeah. I get tremendous psychic income from working with families. And so now I work with families helping them resolve conflict, often conflict that has been simmering for many years and um, which the family very, very much wants to move past. Love it. Thank you, Kathy. Greg, tell us, uh, how did you end up in the wonderful field of working with families, family businesses? Sure. And Michael, thank you for the opportunity. It's been great. Kathy and I have had some communication and to get to know Kathy and her amazing background. Uh, my story may be proof that God has a sense of humor. Um, I grew up in a family that has a business. My dad is a serial entrepreneur and at 88 is still chairman of our company. Uh, so I was an employee and still I'm an owner in my family business. Um, I started on the faculty at Stetson University when I was about 30. And at 38, the dean came to me and said, would you like to start a family business center? And I had no idea what that really meant. But it turned out to be fascinating given both my history and kind of interdisciplinary approach to things. So we developed the first major in family business 
in the country and we think the world. We helped co-create the Transitions Conference with Family Business Magazine. That very quickly led to some consulting and I found a brilliant mentor to help me with that 21, 22 years ago and some coaching. And I do a little bit of writing and speaking, but I, you know, I, I think, and we've talked about this in our preparation, that the number one skill in a family that can be correlated through research and certainly my experience to show what helps a family business be successful and deal with succession is the ability to have the difficult conversation. Get those bumps under the carpet that we keep tripping over out. And to help families do that safely and effectively is just so important and often so difficult. But that's the key to, I think, families that make it versus families that don't make it. Right. Well, again, thank you both for joining us. Um, let's dive in. I, th I think, Greg, you just started to lay the groundwork for what, what we're going to be discussing. And when we were together, we had talked about, you know, the fact that there's three different components to a thriving family enterprise. Do you want to walk us through and talk about that for a second? Sure. I may need you to help me uh, remember our conversation. It's been a while. Yep. Um, I guess when you're, when you're looking at a family and the family owned business, you know, one of the components is the ability to have those difficult conversations when, you know, what are the other skills that a family needs to develop, to work on, to um, ensure that they stay a thriving family enterprise for, for generations or years to come, I guess what would be the question. Well, Michael, I, I think tracking that the what the research shows and what I often recommend to my clients is three things can be shown to correlate. One is the difficult conversation. And I think that's going to be the big focus today. The yeah. other one is the business have an effective strategic plan. In other words, do we know where we're going and how we're going to get there and what are the resources going to be? And then I, the one that I find maybe even more rare than the difficult conversation is, is there an effective board of directors? Does management answer to somebody? Is somebody looking beyond the industry to take us from Blockbuster to Netflix? Because if it is just family members who are in management holding family members who are in management accountable, that's like me giving myself a job review. I'm probably going to say I did great this year. So I think having separating ownership and management is a big transition for a lot of families. Okay. I want to. I know we're going to spend the vast majority of our time on conflict, but I do want to make sure that we hit those other two real quick, and and define them, get them you know in front of people. Because for the vast majority of family businesses that I run into, a lot of times what I see is they have yet to make that transition, and so you know it is super important. the The board doesn't necessarily have to be a fiduciary board of directors. It could be an advisory board. Um, and you know, what I've seen, and Greg, tell me if you, know, if you would agree or you, know, or you have some other thoughts around this, is when you do add that board, it's not, it's not just to hold yourself accountable, but it's also there are people that you can bring in that may know things and just your speed to market in different areas and your speed to adding core processes and systems and all the things that are necessary. Like you, you know, you talked about going from Blockbuster to Netflix. It may not be that big, but it could be lots of little things that could really speed them up and help them to be more profitable. Yeah, Michael. So the term we use is often professionalizing. You know, the founder is usually highly entrepreneurial. 
jack of all trades, does everything, able to pivot. You know, at one point, my dad pivoted from donut stores to at least considering open, opening up the lost Dutchman's gold mine until my mother threatened to shoot him. Uh, that's much harder to do when you have seven siblings and they all have 20% ownership and so on. So on the strategic plan, I think it's getting out of that reactive mindset. You know, if you feel like Indiana Jones running ahead of that boulder, you probably feel like you suffered a lot today, but I don't know if you're leading. You know, the, the research shows most family businesses are overmanaged and underled. Leadership is creating that vision and you need some space and time to think. So the strategic planning process is as important as anything else. On the board, I, I love what you said. I think so many of my clients see it as a threat or loss of control. Yeah. I think an advisory board that has no power beyond the merit of their opinions is often a great way to start. But it's also, you can get somebody who has sold a business or somebody who's been through succession or somebody who is, you know, whatever, it's like free consulting. And if you get the right people at the right point in their career, they're more than happy to help, to mentor. So it's a giant resource. And if managed rightly, I've never seen it be a threat. Agreed. I like what you said about the strategic planning as well, that other piece. It's, I, I, I say it as you need time to not just work in the business, you have to work on the business. And it's that time of shutting the doors and emptying your mind, getting out of the office and doing the SWOT analysis and looking at the industry and the trends and getting your leadership group all aligned and rowing in the same direction. You know, Michael, just a quick comment on that. I do a lot of coaching people running family businesses and family offices. Every one of my coaching clients has finding and creating more white space to do deep thinking is one of their top priorities. Love it. Love it. Kathy, as we, we talked about those things, is there anything that comes to your mind in your experience of dealing with families and, you know, family run businesses that, you know, you would add to this or does that fit your, you know, what you've seen as well in terms of just the, what helps a family to thrive? And I know we're going to, you know, the, the next step is we're going to have lots to talk about, but just wanted to see if there was anything else that you wanted to add. To those three important pieces that Greg just mentioned, um, where, where I focus on is the ability to have difficult conversations. Great. And I would add nothing to that because I know that's going to open up into our next, our next section. So, so why don't we talk about, you know, let's dive right in there. There's a cost to not dealing with these things. And as you've dealt with families through the years, what would you say are some of the costs of not dealing with conflict and not maturing our ability? Because that's really what it is. It's a, it's a maturation cycle, right? To help us to be able to have these conversations um, effectively. But what are some of the costs that, you know, two families for not dealing with this? That's a great question. And my mind is now going crazy thinking of lots of ideas. I would say one major cost is when you don't deal with conflict, you are experiencing a lot of pain, whether you are conscious of it or not. Um, a lot of anxiety, tension, stress, pain, whatever you wanna call it. And it's affecting you um, sometimes physically, and certainly in your ability to um, 
just navigate everything else that's on your plate. Because the unresolved uh, uh, conflict is creating a lot of static in your, in your, your head, your psyche, your heart, whatever you wanna call it. Another big cost I would say is closeness. If you are avoiding something, uh, if you're avoiding dealing with a conflict, you are going to be somewhat distant from the people that you're interacting with. And this is the flip side of something you said before, Michael, which is I really believe that conflict can be great for relationships. Mm -hmm. If it's dealt with skillfully and productively, it can make people so much closer. And so the, the, the opposite of that is if you're not having conflict and you're sweeping it under the rug, you are going to be not close. And that's gonna be creating some, some issues probably, especially if you have to see each other every day. Exactly. It's costing you intimacy in a way. Okay. Greg, spe specifically for family businesses, where would you say that you know, those costs come up? So, so Michael, I've become, I think, more aggressive on my opinions on this because every one of my emails closed with the caption, the age of casual family business is over. I think there's too much change going on. There's too much chaos in the world that you can't just wait till something and react. So, you know, a colleague of mine, Richard Narva says, any family can get along with their family members for two days of Thanksgiving. It <laughs> takes real courage to put your time, money and resources together. And so uh, the research shows that the families that have made it over a hundred years have, in my way of thinking, two things, different people use different frameworks. It's capacity and it's agility. Capacity is, can I deal with conflict? Can I listen to somebody else? Do I have greater self-awareness? All these emotional things that we talk about. And then agility is what gear should I be in for this conversation? Is this an analytical tax problem I should be solving? Is this an emotional problem I should be coaching someone on? You know, I, I think when you look at the research, family businesses that manage their family business involvement well, that develop this capacity, the family involvement in their business, and most families I work with have multiple businesses, their family office, their philanthropy, the family involvement becomes a strategic advantage. It's more values-based decision. It's more longer-term thinking. It's greater trust and cohesion for quicker decision-making. But that doesn't come for free. I use the analogy, we're like fitness coaches. You can wait till you have your first heart attack and say, I should get to the gym, or you can say, I'm going to be proactive. I think more and more families that decide they're going to be proactive and invest in this. Because look at how much time you invest on your business, how many reports you get, how many advisors you have for it. Are you doing equally as much for the family because isn't the family at least as important? A hundred percent. I love that. That's, you know, one of the things that I say to, to families all the time is that we don't go to a Hollywood blockbuster that has zero conflict in it. It would be boring. We don't, we want conflict within the business and within the family. We just want to be able to deal with it. Like you said, Greg, the capacity and Kathy, you know, as you're talking about, we, we don't want, we want to be able to 
I, it's a tough word, I think, sometimes to say, but we want the intimacy, intimacy and the ability to say, I want to be able to look you in the eyes and feel what you're feeling and respect what you're saying and understand it and then tell you, be able to handle that and tell you how I'm feeling so that we can respectfully move to the next level. Um, love it. Love, love, love it. The other one I, is a favorite quote from a guy uh, that coaches entre entrepreneurs, um, Dan Sullivan with the Strategic Coach Program. And he says, all those things that seem to oppose our goals, conflict, are actually the raw materials for achieving them. And I just think that that fits in, in what we're doing because it really is, you know, it all fits right inside of there. So I, from here, I guess what I want to talk about is, you know, some of the other costs, um, I think is growth of the business. I, I don't know if you would agree with that or not. Absolutely. Yeah, it's if you're constantly fighting family fires, if you're constantly dealing with the conflicts, then you're, you're never having the time to be strategic. Michael, yeah. that's good. Or, go ahead, Kathy. I was just going to say a conflict that has not been dealt with successfully may be keeping the entire, both the family and the business stuck. Yeah, you know, a friend of mine, Tom Eberson, says we are all professional boss watchers, and that's probably doubly true in a family business. Can you so say that one more time? Yeah, we are all professional boss watchers. Everybody notices that if Greg has a second cup of coffee or he wears that tie or whatever the little signals are. So it's amazing to me the blind spots my clients have that they don't think the employees pick up when there's tension. Right. And in my experience, they pick up 100% of the time. They may not know the details, but they can always tell when mom or dad or the siblings are having conflict. So this idea that it doesn't impact the business is absolutely wrong. 100%, and, you know, which that leads right to that other thing where as human beings, one of our natures is to close the loop. And whether it's true or untrue, when we see conflict, you know, around the family, we're going to make up a story of, you know, what's going on and why is that happening? And that we could be totally wrong and off base, but that's just what we do is, you know, we, we like to finish the story. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah that's, that's so true. And that's, that's part of the problem. If we're avoiding actually talking to the other person or the other people, because we're afraid of having the conflict come out into the open, we are making up a story. We're making a whole slew of assumptions about what's going on, what the other person intends. Um, and usually we're wrong. Yeah. Because we usually, this is just one of the odd things about human nature is when we, um, when a situation is affecting us in a negative way, and we're trying to figure out what the other person or people intend, we usually assume they intend to have that bad effect on us. So we impute negative intentions to them, which rarely are accurate. Gotcha. So let's, I'm gonna ask you to stretch and if this doesn't work for you, let me know. Sure. But I'd like you to each come up with a family that you've dealt with where they're, they were in conflict. And if you don't, you know, without giving names and, you know, details, you know, that are pertinent to them, but maybe set up and talk about 
what types, just so people can hear two different families, what types of conflict were they dealing with? Who were the players? And then we'll figure out how, you know, what you did to help unwind those things as we went through. So Kathy, would you, can, does, does a family come to mind for you that uh, you could kind of set up and tee it up for us? I can think of several families, but they were not family businesses. Kathy, you want me to start? Go ahead and lay one out for us. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'll tell you about one where I was actually coaching one member of the family. Um, but in doing so, I helped her unravel the whole problem. She was having, this is um, a woman a middle, in middle age whose elderly mother um, had recently changed her will and did not want to discuss it with the daughter. And the mother, after years of having uh, uh, divided her estate equally in her will between the daughter and her son, had recently made the decision to rewrite the will so that it was more in favor of the son who had some health issues that she was worried about. And um, she didn't wanna discuss it. So she did it, she didn't tell the daughter and it slipped out in a conversation one day. And when the daughter got upset and asked questions, the mom clammed up and said, it's none of your business. I wouldn't talk about it. Great. So yeah, that's perfectly teed up. I, I have a, I want to come back to you. I'm going to go back and forth on this. I'm, I've, I've never sure. done it before, so I'm going to juggle it, try to juggle it here. Greg, sure. grab a, a family business that comes to your mind and kind of tell us a little bit about the players and what was the issue they were dealing with. I was consulting with this family. So it was four brothers who were all owner operators and there were two other non-families on the management team. One brother who was at the, the first among equals that was running the company uh, tended to advocate very aggressively. And the other brothers basically got worn down and everybody would sort of capitulate, but it was sort of half buying in. They didn't feel heard. They didn't agree with his decisions. He, he interpreted that, you know, as Kathy said, we put stories to things. He thought his brothers and the two other managers were just not good people that they wouldn't follow through on commitments. They just felt like they were being beaten into submission. When he saw this, that he was sort of stuck in one gear of sort of turbo advocating, if I can use that phrase, he said about two months after he had time to digest it, it changed his life. And it certainly changed the team dynamic. And Greg, I have a question. Um, Michael, if that's okay. Of course. Greg. Did the, the, the brother who was the, um, the relentless advocate, did he, when he was in that gear, did he think, well, the others just aren't getting it. So I'm just gonna say it again, but stronger. Yeah, I don't think he was thinking he was dominating, that he was shutting down. I think he just, that was a very comfortable gear for him to be in mm -hmm. and he used it. And his, his brothers, he was the oldest brother, as you might've guessed, the other brothers just weren't willing to push constantly. Um, so it was more a lack of awareness than some evil intent. Got it. 
Kathy, one of the things that you brought up that I want to make sure that people capture, and I think, Greg, well, you would agree with this, is you were dealing with conflict, but you only dealt with one of the parties. Yes. And there was, you know, there was three people involved in that conflict, but only one was willing to do something about it. And it was still solved. And I think that that's really important for people to capture is that you may not be able to bring all parties to the table. That doesn't mean that you shouldn't get some consulting or some, you know, do some work yourself to try to, to unravel these things because the only person you can control is yourself. Thank you so much for pointing that out. You're absolutely right. There are some in this family and in many families, one person is in pain. In terms of the other people, wild horses would not get them in. Right. Right. To a facilitated family meeting or a series of whatevers. And wild horses wouldn't get them in because A, they don't, they're happy with the status quo. They don't see a problem. And or B, they are conflict avoiders mostly. They prefer to avoid, and therefore they would think, you know, over my dead body, would I want to go into something like that? Right. But the daughter came in because she had been in pain over this situation for five years by the time she came to me. And do you, do you want me to go ahead with the story now? Yeah. And, and matter of fact, so let's, let's think about this just a second. What I'd like to do is you probably have a process for helping people to start to think through these things would be my assumption. Yes. Why don't you, why don't you walk us through, you know, what your process was and then, you know, we'll come back to, you know, depending how long that takes, I want to find out how the daughter went through that process and what her, you know, what her thought process was and how it was able to help her. Yes. And maybe we won't get to how she helped the family figure it all out yet. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm not going to lay out a process in terms of step one, step two, step three, because there are a lot of things that have to happen. And they're not linear. It's sort of a, they're all mushed together. Fair. Analytically, we may be able to think of them as separate. But first of all, you have to define the problem yep. for each person. When, 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 and Greg, I'm sure when you're working with a group, certainly when I'm working with a group, each person has to define what are their goals, what's the problem, and where are we going? And different people may have different views on that, and that's fine. So for this particular client, I had to help her define what are the issues and what were her goals. And then she, of course, had to fill me in on the background, which was quite complicated. And then we have to, then we get into a phase where we have to understand the problem really deeply. And that was really where we started to get some real action, which was in this phase, I try to understand what is preventing the family members from understanding each other. It's fine if they disagree, but so, you know, for example, I, I had to figure out, so why was, the, why was the mom refusing to talk to the daughter? And the more I heard, I mean, really the single most important insight that I had in this case was 
that the mother and daughter had very different ways of dealing with conflict. And each of them had a style when it came to conflict that was like oil and water with the other person's style. And once I realized this, I was able to tell the daughter, I was able to teach her how to speak to her mother differently. Mm. So her mother would open up. And what I realized was that the daughter was a very straightforward person. She was not afraid of conflict. And if she was upset, she let you know it right away. You always know where she stood, but you know, at high volume, if she was upset. The mother was a conflict avoider to the nth degree. And the minute she, anyone, the minute anyone was upset, she would shut down. She would just close, close down completely. And so once I realized that, I was able to explain to the daughter, okay, your mother is very afraid of conflict. And when you behave in your natural way, you are scaring your mother. And that's why she won't talk. So in order to get her to open up, we need to practice different ways for you to talk to her. And it needs to be gradual. So she'll gradually feel safe and open up more. Greg, I'm sure we'll talk about making people feel safe as a key ingredient to opening things up so that you can have a really productive conversation. So once I realized this, this key, I was able to teach the daughter the skills that she needed. And by the way, most people have no conflict skills because they don't learn them anywhere and it's not their fault. That's great. I'm going to stop you right there because I want to come back to find out what those keys of, you know, dealing with the conflict are that sure. you have to with. That'd be great. So Greg, as we're talking about the, the, the brothers and the management team, um, walk us through, you know, take us through the next steps here. Where, where did, where did you get involved? How did it help? You know, where did you start to go with them in terms of coaching, you know, this team? Yeah. So, you know, similar to what Kathy does, and I love this, the story she shared, um, we often say, you know, they're stuck because they're avoiding conflict. They want to be, you know, in this case, it was generally an ownership succession issue, which they'd been stuck on for over a decade. But I'm always that fitness coach saying, how do we develop the capacity of this team? So uh, from a different perspective, but the same kind of thing Kathy was talking about, self-awareness. So you advocate very effectively, very well, but just like a car with five gears, if you drive around in second gear all the time, something goes wrong. Empathy, what do the other people in the room care about? What's their style? If they wanna be drawn out and heard and listened to, you're not affording that. And then framing, as Kathy said, with the goal, What's the real issue here that we, is this a family issue or a tax issue? You know, at one point with this client, one of their advisors was trying to mediate a business solution and it was a sibling rivalry issue. Mm -hmm. And I think he was doing this with good intent, but it was his way to deal with the stress in the room. We had to politely ask him to sort of shift into neutral and let us deal with the sibling tension. So those three agilities, self-awareness, who am I, how am I perceived? Empathy, what do the other people really care about? How do I meet them more effectively? And then framing, and of those three, I find framing to be the one people spend the least time on. You're in a meeting with four people and you're having three different discussions. 
So after we were able to get the leader to sort of see this, the team decided they need to do some work on trust and commitment and some other basic teamwork skills. So we spent over a year on just team building with that group. Love it. You know, one of the, one of my um, go-to for this, just to open the door on this conversation is Patrick Lencioni's Five Dysfunctions of the Team. And it, you're just defining that trust issue. You've got these brothers in this management team who, you know, are afraid that if I talk, He's just going to, you know, plow over me and I'm never going to be heard. And, and trust isn't that, that the trust of like the trust fall thing. And it's right. And it's, it's, it's being heard and listened to and empathy and, you know, putting all those pieces together. So good. Thank you. That's. Michael, I can just respond. So that's exactly the model we used. And I think two of my colleagues and I are trying to pioneer that with families. And he calls it vulnerability-based trust, which it is. And one of the just the anecdotal signs that it isn't working is when the meeting always happens outside of the meeting. Right, right, right. Did you see? Did you listen? Did you see? And did you hear that? You know, absolutely. I love it. Um, so you spent a year going through, you know, and, and, and talking about trust and conflict and being able to disagree and commit, I would imagine. And, you know, all of those, you know, types of pieces. And, and it wasn't, it wasn't a, you know, it's not a pull off the Band-Aid and we take a magic pill and it's fixed. This is practice, right? But it's worth it. Just out of curiosity, if you, I mean, with, again, we're not disclosing companies, but what would you say, you know, what kind of revenues is this company dealing with? Oh, uh, I would say about 150. So, so if we don't deal with these things, where do we go? What is the, you know, the, the, there's a financial effect that's happening as well. I think families need a practice. Again, I go to the analogy of working out. Nobody says I went to the gym back in 2018 for one whole weekend. Yeah. That's it. So I often say, what is your family business practice? And if you don't have one, I think you're putting the most important relationships and assets in your life at risk unnecessarily. Agreed, agreed, I love it. So Kathy, let's let's come back to your story for a second. And you said that there was some, remind, uh, you, you taught some different characteristics and not characteristics, it was you taught some different skills. Yes, yes, I had to teach, um, I had to teach some communication skills to the daughter that were not, um, that she had never learned. And like most people, she just, you know, I think, I think most of us learn um, our, 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 our skills of dealing with conflict. We, we, we learn a few things to do when we're children. And by the time we're about six, we've got our repertoire down. And we kind of use that for the rest of our lives. That's my personal theory. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't disagree with that. I, I can see that maybe even through middle school with some, with some people, but um, I, can, I went back and I have some formative things that happened yeah. child that I didn't then as an adult parent 
myself, you know what I mean, to make those changes. And it took me some time, and I'm okay sharing this with the with the audience. It took me some time working with a therapist, working with somebody that could help me download some new skills mm-hmm. in how I communicated. Yes. So what were some of the things, you know, attributes that uh, that you worked on with this woman? Do you well, this woman had no problem asserting her own point of view. So what I had to teach her was the the other side of that piece, which is listening and being very gentle in her listening. Mm -hmm. And that's very challenging for most people. Which goes back to what Greg was saying earlier about empathy, right? And be her and she wasn't allowing that space. Keep going. This is great. That's right. It requires, and certainly for this this client, it requires a lot of self-discipline a lot of self-control because you're you're inviting the person to open up and tell you where they're what's important to them and where they're coming from on some issue and it's quite likely they're going to say things that you don't want to hear and your instinct is going to be to stop listening at that point and in your head you're going to be listening to your own voice forming your rebuttal instead of hearing what the other person is saying. And and you might even jump in and start arguing or defending yourself or whatever your habit might be. And that's all very natural. So it's unnatural to learn the skill of just being quiet and allowing the person to say whatever it is that their answer is, and then inviting them to say more. It's very challenging especially if you're if they're saying something you you don't want to hear oh please do say more that's the last thing you want to do right and so the way i taught her was and the way i teach my students and clients is we practiced i practiced being the mother she practiced being the daughter um she taught me how to be the mother in a realistic way so i could be somewhat difficult but realistic then we switched She was the mom and I was the skillful daughter. And that almost taught her more because she saw that when she was trying to be her own difficult, her mother in a realistically difficult way, she realized it was harder and harder to be difficult when I was being really nice and really listening and not arguing. And so basically where I got her was ready, for wherever the conversation went, she knew how to keep it productive and not go into a place where she would escalate. Perfect. Greg, I saw that some expressions on your face. Do you wanna, do you wanna add, add to this? Well, I mean, I, I love the story and you can see how skillfully Kathy works with people. Yeah, I, I think, you know, there, people are stuck, especially in families then, you know, they're frustrated. There's a fear it's going to blow up and damage the relationship. So yeah. I think the preparation time of deconstructing this, helping them see different options, different ways to show up, practicing it, and then even facilitating the discussion. So when things get heated, you slow it down. You know, one point I want to emphasize that Kathy made is I work with a lot of families, and especially during conflict, people generally don't feel heard I'm sorry, people don't listen until they feel heard. Mm-hmm. You know, in my career, I've worked with two therapists with families. 
And they were just brilliant at saying, you know, whatever, Kathy, I see you feel very strongly about this. So validation doesn't mean you agree with the person's decision, but it means you sense what they're going through. And you can watch people's shoulders drop, their jaws relax, mm -hmm. and their intake valve opens up. As Kathy said, when you're just sitting there waiting to make your counterpoint, you know, I, I've stopped with families and said, Ralph, what did your brother just say? And he has no idea. <laughs> yeah. He could have said, you get it all and, you know, I'll give you 20,000 more, but they just don't hear it. Right. So helping people slow down, show up differently and listen with each other. Because I think the one thing, you know, my mentor said, what makes this consulting process work is the commitment to family. So that I want mom and dad to be happy, that I want my kids to get along with my sister's kids. It's amazing the difficult conversations that families will sit there and have and find a solution because it's a permanent relationship. You know, the, the biggest or truest failure I think I've had in 23 years was somebody who said, my partners and I are like family. And I turned him down three times. I finally said, okay, which was a mistake. We went in the second day of meetings, they quit. And it was a lesson learned, at least for me, that I do pretty good work with families because of that commitment. If they're not families, I don't, the, the magic sauce isn't there. Right. Yeah, you, you, when it's family, you don't have a choice. You are, yeah. you just are. Love it. Yeah, Talk when, about when there's no exit from, you know, there's no easy out. You're willing, I think, to um, hang in there maybe a little bit longer through the really tough parts. Agreed. So bring us up to speed on the family that you're that you were serving, Greg, and just talk about the brothers, maybe a little bit more about what were some of the resolutions? What how did it start to unfold? You know, what was different from when you met them to how they started to communicate later? Well, so I, I think a couple uh, key takeaways from a lot of hard work on their part and my colleagues wonderful work, too was one, the ownership succession, which had them stuck for over a decade, got resolved in a much more meaningful way. Two, the relationship with the brothers enhanced because that constant grinding was just, the, the older brother decided to pull back, which I think was wise given his life stage and some other issues he was struggling with. And the two non-family managers felt like they weren't navigating the bumps under the family carpet constantly. Um, the next generation stepped up more, some family meetings went a little more effectively, because again, everybody was watching these four brothers, and they could just see the constant frustration. So uh, again, the notion that the family conflict doesn't impact the business is, in, in my opinion, just naive. I have a question for Greg, which is, I'm wondering, you said one of the key issues that was not recognized until you started working with the four brothers was sibling rivalry. Was it sibling rivalry between the oldest brother and, and another brother, or was it between two of the non-oldest? Oh, that's a good point. I would say there was a dash of it between all four brothers, but certainly uh, one of the brothers and the one in charge. You know, one, to talk about agility, one of the brothers would say, I play devil's advocate. And again, that's a great gear at a certain point, but he tended to be stuck in that gear and it made people not want to invite him to meetings because you'd say, I have a brilliant idea I'm excited about. 
and he'd sort of pull out the gun and start shooting skeet, as we called it. So again, most gears aren't good or bad, but helping people see, that's why I like the metaphor of a car. Nobody would say, Michael, third gear is terrible. Don't use third gear, right? But if you drove your car around in third gear all day, something bad would probably happen. Yeah. So helping people be mindful, and Kathy, you and I talked about this, of pat turning patterns into choices, checking out assumptions. You know, there's some pretty standard sort of skills that we bring to the table. Sometimes, you know, an assumption can be cleared up in five minutes and it can be life-changing. Sometimes it is a gut-wrenching, difficult conversation. Yes. And I think that what kind of ties these things together is that when people don't feel heard, they feel disrespected. And sometimes they make the mistake of thinking that the person who's not hearing is disrespect mm -hmm. is disrespecting them on purpose. Whether it feels like on purpose or not on purpose, it feels equally bad. Right? I don't our, know who originally said it. Our families can push our buttons so well because they installed them. <laughs> because what? Because they installed them. You know, I mean, we're so close to the family members that it's, you know, whatever, you can see a mother raise an eyebrow and the sister or daughter goes ballistic. Uh, our families have such intimacy with us that they have such power. Yeah. Another truism, especially for your audience, is in my experience, most families will accept most decisions if the process is fair. Yes. They feel heard. So not everybody gets what they want. Family businesses are not democracies. But if people don't feel heard, they don't feel engaged, if they don't feel validated, they will almost always disagree. Yeah. Yes. One of my favorite sayings is, and I, I heard this from someone else, can't take credit for it, is it's more, most people, it's more important to them to be heard than to be agreed with. Thousand percent. <laughs> and so once you hear someone and you you show them that you get it you can disagree and they usually will be fine yeah. with the fact that you don't agree i'm going to bring that's back separate the two no that's great i'm going to bring back the five dysfunctions because i think i want to i want people to hear them real quick because i think you know um greg what you did was you just took this family right through you know, so that they could they could recognize these five dysfunctions so that they could function going forward. And, you know, it's again, that's that trust. They needed to be able to have the vulnerability with one another to know that they were going to be able to say something without being squashed. They needed to allow that conflict to happen so that they could, you know, um, not have any artificial harmony. They didn't, weren't just walking out of the room and having the meeting someplace else. They were allowing the conflict to happen within the room. But because they trusted, because they allowed the conflict to happen now, and they've been heard and they feel empathized with and you know have been given empathy, they're able to commit to a path going forward that they may not agree a thousand percent with. But they're going to, you know, we're going to decide and commit to move forward, which leads them to accountability, being able to make sure everybody's doing what they're supposed to be doing. And finally, you know, in Lencioni's model, it's the, you know, talking about the results, but a decade of no succession plan really 
Could you imagine had that been settled a year into talking about the succession plan or three years into it, what the potential results of the business might have been if they weren't focused on that? Amen. No, and you walked through that really well, Michael. And you know, you can see where once the conflict of the one brother over advocating, there were other issues, but you needed that trust first, you need to deal with the conflict, and then people were actually committing in meetings. Well, that that was a giant change. You know, another, I, go ahead. Sorry, another uh, family office we worked with, uh, again, 18 months of work with this model. The leader said work is now fun again. Wow. That's great. That's you know, a testimony. So Kathy, did you talk to your client after she met with mom and went through this process? And how many conversations did she have with mom to get from point A to point B? Was it multiple conversations? That yes. alluded to that. Talk about that a little bit, if you don't mind. Sure. Well, the first thing we had to do was to figure out how many different things was she negotiating for and to negotiate for them one at a time because the mom needed a very gentle process to trust that the daughter wasn't going to blow up again and get upset. So I, I, I told the client, your first negotiation is with your mom is for her permission to read the will because the daughter didn't even know what was in the will. And so of course the daughter was imagining that um, everything was going to the brother or she didn't know how much. And she was, make, she was imagining because she needed to tell a story to herself and fill in the blank. She was imagining things that were possibly worse than what was accurate. So the first negotiation with the mom was simply for permission to read the will and no more. And so we practice that conversation in different ways that she might lead into it in a very gentle and loving way. And in one conversation, the mom said, sure, you can read the will. So that was really exciting. The daughter read the will, she got the information she needed. It was about what she thought, not quite as bad as she feared in terms of the inequality between the brother who genuinely needed more financial help. Um, and her. And then the next negotiation was more challenging because the next negotiation was for the daughter to negotiate with the mother. Well, the way the daughter framed, this is about framing again, the way the daughter framed the second negotiation was, um, I need to persuade mom to change the will back to 50-50. And I thought that was a, the frame was a little bit too strong. Um, I thought that what she should negotiate for was for um, her mom to be willing to, to hear the daughter's input. Mm -hmm. Because I thought that where the daughter needed to start was to assure the mom that she, the daughter understood that it was mom's money and mom gets to do whatever she wants with it. She needed to give mom the respect of saying, mom, I understand that you have autonomy over this decision. Now, 
Would you be willing to hear how I feel about it? And so that's what we practiced. And I think she had a couple, maybe two conversations. And then I, and I, I, I encouraged the daughter just to wait and let the good effects of each conversation just kind of percolate in the mom's brain. Not, and just, just wait and let time do its work. And in fact, that happened about two months later, the daughter informed me that the mom had changed the will back to 50-50. But the mom had to do it in her own way because she had, the mom had to feel like she was saying, you are not the boss of me. I am the boss. Love it. Thank you, Kathy. Greg, in regards to the family, you know, anything else that you want to share with us that anything pop up that uh, as we're, as we're talking that um, you think is important for this finalizing this story? Well, I'd say two things for the business people listening and they, they're echoed in Kathy's statements today is one, the process, if the relationship matters, the process may be more important than the specific outcome. Yes. And I think in business, we're so driven by outcomes that sometimes we miss the value of the process. So it's, it's hard to be intimate and hyper-efficient. So families and relationships move at a different pace. I think the other thing, I love the phrase Kathy used, percolate. That, yeah. yeah, these emotional things take time to digest. So like we often meet one afternoon the next morning or you give people a week. And so shifting gears from the business problem solving mode, you know, you can solve a tax issue in an hour. You probably can't have a difficult conversation in an hour. You can start it. But shifting your mindset to say this intimacy takes time. Vulnerability takes time. I'm going to have to slow down on this one. Love it. When, when we, we've developed a process that we utilize internally with family businesses and what we did, we had interviewed 20 different family businesses. And then I went and interviewed 25 different family business coaches or advisors. And, you know, the data came back that the hardest thing for the family was alignment. And it's if the, if the family wasn't in alignment, if they weren't all rowing in the same direction, which is the source of the conflict, right? Is that the lack of alignment, um, the, it, it caused an awful lot of problems. So we you know, utilize a process to help people focus on the results and the goals first, just like you, you know, you're talking about. And then we come back and say, now what are all the obstacles to getting those things? And it just changes the framework a little bit because we can talk about those things and we have each family member fill them out separately and so that they can see these things and it's facilitated that way. And now everybody gets a chance and everybody has to get heard. So it's, it's kind of neat how you're, you're talking about your process. And I will tell you, you know, it, I have, you know, done this a handful of times now. We did, the process just was done this year. But each time that we've done it thus far, it's just opened up a door and a possibility to allow percolating and to allow empathy to start to happen. Um, now, I've had some you know, families that were not in the heat of the moment conflict. I don't think that you know, a family that's at that level, at the burstings of the seams level, this is going to help. But I think it's, you know, it's a nice process little by little. 
So you two, Greg and Kathy, if somebody wanted to reach out to you, how do they reach, you know, Greg McCann? How do they reach you, Kathy? Let's, Kathy, are you on LinkedIn? Do you have a website? Yes, I am on LinkedIn. Kathy Holub is all you need to know. And my website is kathyholub.com. So the key is knowing how to spell my last name, H-O-L-U-B. And Greg, I think you, you have show notes where we can put this information, right? Yeah. Yep. I mean, Michael. Yes. Love it. I, I appreciate it. And Greg, how do people reach, reach you? Uh, usually I'm in the Atlanta airport, so just go to Terminal B. <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> My, my email and website, uh, so my website is greg-mccann.com, uh, and my email is greg-mccann. Uh, um, God, I'm, I'm embarrassed that it just slipped my mind, but I'm, I'm sure you'll have the information. But yeah, I, I'm more than happy to talk to any family or any advisor about anything that's percolating with them. Um, I really think, you know, the more we can do to help families deal with this, to develop this capacity, there's just too much at stake not to do it. Love it. I really, really appreciate both of your time today. Um, this was productive. There was a lot of good conversation here. And this is, you know, these are the things that people need to be focusing on, like you said, Greg, um, because family is just too important. Um, the business, you know, is secondary to being able to sit at the holiday table together, you know, and, uh, not yeah, just and if you take the frame that the conflict is an opportunity, yeah, right, to fix something that's not working and get to something better, it's it can be very positive. So again, thank you both for joining me today. My thank name is Michael Columbus. This has been the Family Biz Show. I'm with Family Wealth and Legacy in Rochester, New York. And if you loved what you listened to today, please make sure you subscribe so that you can uh, hear the rest of the wonderful guests that we have coming up. And we are mixed between advisors and consultants for family business and actual family businesses themselves who have gone through and navigated a lot of these conversations already. And so it's great to hear both sides of the story. Thank you, everyone, and have a great day. Thanks for listening to The Family Biz Show. We appreciate your time and trust to deliver the best guests and most cutting-edge information to help you maximize your family business. Being part of a family is tough. Add a business to that, and it gets even tougher. Tune in next week as we strive to ease your journey with The Family Biz Show. The content presented is for informational and educational purposes. The information covered and posted are views and opinions of the guests and not necessarily those of Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation. Michael Columbus is a registered representative of Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation. Securities and investment advisory services offered through Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation, a broker dealer, member SIPC, and registered investment advisor. Insurance offered through Lincoln Financial Affiliates and other fine companies. Family Wealth and Legacy, LLC, is not an affiliate of Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation. Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation and its representatives do not provide legal or tax advice. You may want to consult a legal or tax advisor regarding any legal or tax information as it relates to your personal circumstances.